The next lecture in the series will be next Tuesday. Alistair Johnson from the Poltroon Press in Berkeley will be lecturing on 19th century American type specimens. And then in the week following, also Tuesday, Michael Turner, the uh, head of conservation at the Bodleian Library, will be lecturing on recent developments in conservation in England. Would somebody grab the door? It's our pleasure tonight to welcome David Hall, who's professor of history at Boston University uh, and an expert in 17th century American history and uh, increasingly in 17th century book trade matters as well. Uh, speaking on that subject now, he is, as you know, the director of the Center for the History of the Book in American Culture program in American Culture. Uh, the names I'm sure no one ever gets right, uh, but should. And it's a great pleasure to welcome you to Columbia tonight. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and it's a pleasure to receive from the hands of, uh, I may speak to those of you who are students, hands of your enthusiastic professor, a copy of John Locke, something St. Paul, was it John Locke? Consult St. Paul, which I will read this evening in the frame that I to Princeton and temporarily. What I'm about to describe are a series of aspects of reading, writing, the book trade in 17th century New England with a occasional reference back to the Reformation or to English practice. And I, I need to introduce this just in the briefest way by saying that uh, my subject is not really those matters at all. They, those are really means to a larger end. And what I'm, what I'm presenting to you this evening is a piece of a book that's going out next year on, on a subject that's hard to define but exists for historians, and that's the subject of popular religion. Or you might think of popular culture, if you wish, but popular religion. How that term is used when you're speaking in the 16th and 17th centuries is quite different than when you're speaking of today. And today is what's mass market, is what most people have. When that phrase is used in reference to the 16th and 17th centuries, or the 18th, or even leading into the early 19th, just a little bit before the transition occurs, is what it refers to is really a question or a problem, and that is to say whether the people somehow thought differently from the elite leaders or those constituted as authorities. And of course, if you're dealing with religion, you're talking about the clergy. So is there a difference between what the clergy said and did about religion from what the people said and did about religion? There is, of course, the hypothesis that the people didn't care about religion at all. An hypothesis that appeals to a number of historians burning up in Europe. Some of you will be familiar with Carl Ginsburg's The Cheese and the Worms, in which he presents a Tuscan miller of the 16th century who got enmeshed in the. That's fine, I'm used to this from Boston. Don't, don't, uh, don't. Uh, if you can hear me, I can, I'm doing just fine. The traffic noises are no, no problem. The temperature might be more of a problem. Tuscan Miller, who, who uh, according to Carl uh, Ginsburg, the historian who has made this man now a kind of household word among historians, really thought uh, completely differently from the way that the clergy or the Catholic Church uh, said he should have taught. And there's a, a book that again, some of you will know of on, on English religious culture in the late 16th and 17th centuries, Keith Thomas's Religion of the Kind of Magic, that suggests that ordinary people are the lowest or kind of grooving on the occult while the clergy were presumably saying this was not so good. These are the kinds of questions that interest me, and, and insofar as I deal this evening this afternoon with uh, reading and writing, and I'm going to talk about the almanacs a little bit, maybe a little bit else depending on how my time goes. My, my, my question to myself is, uh, uh, were the people being empowered by literacy by reading, by the way that books themselves were understood, represented. And then I'm, uh, I actually follow in the full study from which I take this particular part, I follow a triadic structure in which on the one hand there are the clergy, 
On the other, there's that amorphous grouping called the people. And then there is a third, uh, slightly subversive element called printers. And my assumption is throughout, and it's only faintly visible here this, this, this evening, my assumption throughout is that while the printers were quite happy to serve the interests of the clergy, and did in many, many ways, the printers also had their own agendas. And uh, one might say, to simplify enormously, that their agenda is that of whatever the marketplace will absorb. They're also responsive to a whole series of, of oppositional groups that they also help express themselves in the marketplace. But the, but the full study that I try to tell, and sorry I don't have the chance to take several hours and read you the full study so you have a fuller sense of the printer's role, is that they are, they are mediators between the clergy and the people, and, and in some sense genuinely carrying down to the people what the clergy were saying. And on the other hand, they are in some ways messing up what the, what the ministers have to say. We'll, we'll hear that messing up taking place here, I hope, tonight. Just to give you one other example that I don't cite tonight, uh, in another part of this book I'm concerned with piety, how ordinary people felt religion, religion as feeling, meaning my heart is wounded by, or I feel guilty of sin, or all those sorts of things. And many of these people in the subject were extremely expressive about their feelings. They had, of course, a code, a series of formula on which to, on which to draw. Again, a formula that the ministers relay in their sermons that's available in books of devotion and all kinds of literature that's very widely accessible and used, imported, printed locally, and so forth and so on. One piece that I cite in particular is a narrative of the life of Francis Spiro, that's the English pronunciation, a mid-16th century Italian Venetian who was tempted to become a Lutheran, according to the story, then was forced by the church and by his friends and by fears of losing his, his business to recant. And as he makes the decision to recant, which he does in public in Venice, he hears a voice saying, you've committed the unpardonable sin. Now, the narrative of Francis Spira takes up at this point, I should say it's a piece of Protestant propaganda, in which Francis Spira then dies. But it takes a long time dying. It isn't fair it's a year, a couple of years, however long it takes. And it's a series of nightmares that he has, a series of rejections of spiritual counsel, saying, no, you haven't committed the unpardonable sin. This was an extremely popular piece of literature, published between the middle of the 16th century and then reprinted in the 17th century. In fact, it's reprinted as late as the 19th century in various forms. It's actually referred to by the colonists. It's referred to by John Bunyan in his, uh, his in Grace of Bounding. Little Betty Sewell, at the age of 14, comes bounding into her father's bedroom. This is falling into, falling into a jargon here. Samuel Sewell's of Boston's daughter Betty was bounding into her father's bedroom early one morning, very early one morning, wakes him up and says, I fear I have another spiral. She's going through a kind of pre-adolescent or adolescent conversion experience. Now the interesting thing is that John Dunton, of whom some of you may know, the man who actually came to New England as a bookseller briefly and was very active in London, issues a, a book called The Second Spiral in about 1690, which sells, he tells us, 30,000 copies in a very short period of time. His rivals in the book trade issue a book called The True Second Spiral, in which they denounce Dunton's as a false book. And indeed, we now know from Dunton's, or one knows from Dunton's biography, where he says, aha, this is a trick I play on everybody. So you have this, this game that printers seem peculiarly drawn to playing. I cite this as one example where the printers get involved in making, a kind of, making fictive or playful a narrative that lay people have otherwise taken to be a kind of heartfelt uh, story. It may be the original narrative is fictive, although its origins are, are lost in Calvin's Geneva and other places. But so much then for what I'm about. My, my purpose tonight is to address issues of empowerment or contradiction, ways in which reading on the one hand did convey a particular message, and on the other the ways that the book trade or reading somehow complicated that message. And I'm going to take you through three episodes, with perhaps a fourth if there's time. One is simply how, starting with the Bible, how books themselves were represented, and uh, how literature for book was represented, or the word was represented in the 17th century. Then a few comments on literacy and how people use their reading 
then a bid on the New England Almanac, which, of which the history is rather interesting. And then finally, if there's time to just say a few words about a, a Baptist or a man who's about to turn Baptist in New England and how he turns back upon the minister of some of their own principles. Twelve-year-old boy, this is, uh, I, have to, I have to give a lot of these things away because they're in the footnotes and they're, they're otherwise, this is Benjamin Franklin. A twelve-year-old boy, precociously alert to the literary marketplace, writes a ballad in Grub Street style on the drowning of Captain Wertherlake with his two daughters. Printed as a broadside, the ballad sells wonderfully in the streets of Boston. Young men in Dedham sit up many a time the great part of the night in the secrecy of the town's sawmill to hear a book read, probably Aristotle's masterpiece, that teaches them the art of gaining power over women. A widow wills an old great Bible and a little new Bible to her relatives. A servant girl named Catherine Branch of Stanford has fits in 1692 that seem to indicate she is possessed by demons. In the midst of one of them, as witnessed by her master, she, quote, rehearses a great many verses which are in some primers, and also the dialogue between Christ, the young man, and the devil, the Lord's Prayer, all the commandments and catechism, the creed, and several such good things. This is actually the entire contents of the main These are gestures that draw us into the world of print as it was experienced by the people of 17th century New England. These were people who, who eagerly read street ballads on sensational events, but also treasured Bibles, who slipped off at night to sample dirty books, but who also memorized the contents of a famous school book, the New England Primer. That servant girls like Catherine Branch could read, or at least recite the Primer, is one reason why this world of print deserves attention. Compared to other regions, New England may have been distinctive in its rate of literacy. In fact, I do argue that it was distinctive. But regardless of percentages, how people learned to read and how they used their literacy were deeply consequential for popular religion. The colonists enjoyed privileged access to the Bible. Theirs was the privilege all Protestants insisted on, of having scripture in the language of the people. So the martyrs under Mary Tudor had demanded in debating their interrogators. Christ, quote a layman, never spake any Latin, but always in such a tongue as the people might be edified thereby. When Protestants returned to power, they viewed it as a fundamental right, to quote a famous martyr, that the people have the scriptures. Then I can cite Thomas Cartwright, who's one of the great leaders of Elizabethan Puritanism, who insists in the 1570s in a kind of apostrophe to popular availability. And Theodoreth liketh well that the points of religion which the church taught were not only known of doctors and masters, but of tailors, smiths, weavers, and other artificers. Not of citizens alone, but of country folk, ditchers, delvers, neat herds, and gardeners, disputing even of the Holy Trinity. And this succeeds a long statement which he calls for free access to the Bible. These very kinds of people appear in Foxes of the Myers as literate in Scripture. People such as Rollins White, a fisherman, who mastered the Bible by having his young son read a piece of it every night after supper, summer, and winter. Identifying with the likes of Romans White, the New England colonists reaffirmed the right of access to the Bible. Never did a New England government deny Bibles to the people, as happened under Mary Tudor and Henry VIII. Rather was it assumed that people must be readers and own Bibles in a language they could understand. Now, the Bible was a printed book, as many of you would know better than I, an object just as physical as any chair or skillet. In all, some 600,000 Bibles passed from printers to the public before 1640, and it's estimated another million of New Testaments and Psalters. No printer in New England could legally, was legally entitled to print Bibles, the only local version, of course, being John Eliot's translation into Algonquin. 
But in 1640, the newly founded printing shop in Cambridge issued a new translation of the whole book of Psalms. The work of a committee of ministers, the Bay Psalm book as it was called, was the first book to be published in New England. Its sales were steady, enough to warrant a reprinting in 1647, and six more before the end of the century. The makers of the Bay Psalm book had shrewdly recognized a business opportunity. Some copies of this local product were shipped back to England, where demand was steady for editions of the Psalms. These facts remind us that the Bible was like other books in being a commodity, but to its readers in the 17th century, the Bible was unlike other books in escaping its materiality. It was priceless, though you found it in the marketplace. It was timeless, though a printer may have dated an edition. It was living, though its matter were mere ink and paper. How the Bible appeared as the living word of God would affect how other books were represented. By using a piece of jargon, when I say represented, I mean perceived. It would be a more conventional language. How other books were represented and how they were read. The uniqueness of the Bible, all this I know is truistic, the uniqueness of the Bible was its status as the word. All other texts were copies of this one original. All other forms of truth were incomplete or partial next to scripture. It was the living speech of God, the voice of Christ, a text that people heard, or else it was like light that conveyed to the eye or soul the truth that was the gospel. A book, yet not a book, the Bible had a unique forum. It was unique in its priceless value, veritably the book above all books, I'm quoting now, the very reading Christ urged on his disciples after rising from the dead. An English minister compared it to immortal seed, to God's last will and testament, and then the Magna Carta. I get something in there that sort of drives home what this is about. Another likened its truths to pillars of silver and its promises to gold. The martyr Lady Jane Grey affirmed in a parting letter to her sister that the New Testament was worth more than precious stones. A minister described it as a mirror in which Christians saw reflected their real nature, their corrupt hearts, their willfulness, their desperate need to mercy. He went on to say the scripture was like medicine in cleansing men of sin. It was physic to the soul. Yea, by Christ doth cast out devils and raise men from the death of sin. Indeed, people thought that the protective powers of the gospel of the Bible were extraordinary. Stories circulated of the Bible being used to rescue someone from the devil. I have read an English collector of such tales declared of some cameras, a schoolmaster who had a scholar who had in a writing in his own blood promised to give his soul on certain conditions to the devil. And the devil in the night knocked at his chamber door and demanded the paper of him. That was the contract. But he answered, I have laid the paper in my Bible. And in that page where it is written, the seed of the woman shall bruise the head of the serpent and take it thence, Satan, if you canst. And thereupon the devil departed. People turned in New England to scripture for protective names to give their children. At moments of great stress, as when a young man quarreled with his parents over whether he should join in the migration to New England, the Bible opened randomly, told what he should do. I hastily took up the Bible and told my father that if where that if where I opened the Bible there I met with anything either to encourage or discourage, that should settle me. I opened of it not knowing no more than the child in the womb. The first I cast my eyes on was, come out from among them, touch no unclean thing. He leaves. A woman taken captive by the Indians, this is Mary Rowlandson, remembered how, encountering unexpectedly her son, she offered him her Bible, and he lighted upon that comfortable scripture, Psalms 118, 17, 18. Look here, mother, says he. Did you read this? This is when she thinks she's going to die in the wilderness. Always the meaning of the Bible was self-evident. It was a book that made its message felt without there being any mediation. No intermediaries, no gloss, no message that called for interpretation. In the root sense of the word, the Bible was immediately available.
Hence, the only manner of translating it was to leave well enough alone. Translation was an act of reaffirming the original, not, as is said in the preface of the Baysan book, the negative is not cloaking it in paraphrase. Thus the men who prepared the Baysan book declared in their preface they had done their best to attend the original, explaining that God's altar needs not our polishings. If their poetry were plain, it was because the plainness of the Bible was synonymous with its direct perception. Yet this very understanding of the Bible was a partisan creation the doing of a group of Protestants who imposed their interpretation on the text. Mediation did occur and was an everyday affair, whether through the very choice of words in a translation or in how the text itself was arranged. The makers of the Geneva Bible deemed it necessary to equip their translation with a critical apparatus that included running commentary in the margins. They divided the text into numbered verses. Is that what John Locke is complaining? That they divided the numbers. I think I think the Bible Bible was the first that's divided the numbers verses. Placed quote some notable word or sentence which may greatly further an understanding unquote of the text at the top of every page. Inserted summaries in front of every book and chapter, and commissioned 26 woodcuts that visually elucidated passages quote so dark unquote that no other means would do to make their meaning quote easy to the simple reader. To make the text more readable and the book less costly, its printers used Roman type instead of the more difficult black letter and shrank the size from folio to quarto. The translators of the Baysong book, though denying any role as mediators, and they say, we're not, we're not in the way here, just forget about us, made that role explicit in confessing they had tinkered with the Hebrew in order to insert a meter that made the Psalms more readable and more elegant. In the end, an ear for elegance and sweetness affected the translation. The paradox was this, of mediators who represented scripture as unmediated, yet who made their presence felt on every page. This was a paradox that extended to the works these writers wrote themselves, the sermons, manuals of devotion, and biographies that appeared in abundance in England, and subsequently in New England. In imitation of the Bible, these writers represented everything they wrote as truth. They said so directly in affirming they were different from the, quote, many scribbling professors in the world who write imperfect copies. This is what we are to quote, this is what we were not. And they also used what we may think of as truth-heightening conventions. Within the literary tradition of the Protestant vernacular, the foremost of these techniques was to include references to scripture. Every published sermon in New England began with a text, and many others followed in the body of the text of scripture, and many others followed in the body of the discourse. This formal device was complemented by a repertory of figures and motifs that derived from the Bible, and by patchwork quoting without giving any reference. Lay writers wrote such prose and poetry as skillfully as learned ministers and always with the same objective, to reduce the distance between what they said and what was contained in the great original, the word. Another consequence of this ambition was a bias against preaching from a written text, or even notes, in order that a sermon would seem in the demonstration of the spirit. It was a telling moment when in Hartford Meeting House, a minister stopped in the middle of a sermon and was silent for some minutes. For those in Thomas Hooker's congregation, his silence signified, not that he had forgotten what was in his sermon, but dependence on the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit returned, he would resume preaching. The metaphors that writers used for books betoken the same goal of fusing written word or spoken with the Holy Spirit, or the Word. When John Norton used the title, Abel Being Dead Yet Speaketh, for his biography of John Cotton, he played upon the interchangeability of speech, life, and the printed page. A young writer in New England was moved by John Cotton's death in 1651 to liken Cotton's very self to a book that had no errors, like the Bible. Both this is a poem. 
a living, breathing Bible. Tables where both covenants at large engraven were, gospel and law in his heart at each its column, his head an index to the sacred volume, his very name a title page, and next his life a commentary on the text. Oh, what a glorious, oh, what a monument of glorious worth when in a new edition he comes forth without Horatus. May we think he'll be in leaves and covers of eternity. Interesting that the metaphor of the book would be, as it were, a metaphor to present eternal life. Another of these metaphors was mirror, which I've already alluded, as in the title of an English broadside of 1643, a looking glass for the soul, worthy to be hung up in every house in this kingdom and to be looked in daily. This is print now. The aura of these metaphors, the fusion of the book with life, was evoked by Anne Bradstreet in her dedication of a book of private meditations to my dear children. This book by any yet unread, I leave for you when I am dead, that being gone, here you may find what was your living mother's mind. In the line between life and death is being disrupted here, and the book becomes living. Make use of what I leave in love, and God shall bless you from above. More rhetorical, although still within the same vernacular tradition, was an English writer's portrait of a book that was, and yet was not, a material object. There is a book of three leaves, said one, and I have been reading it all my life, and I have not read it over. One was a red leaf, the other a white, the third a black leaf. The black leaf was of death, hell, and judgment. The white leaf was of heaven. The red leaf was of the blood of Christ. Evoking for themselves, excuse me, evoking for the books they wrote themselves, the aura of the word, these writers asked that readers respond to their books as though they were as sacred as the Bible. In telling people how to read, writers began by reiterating the advice St. Anselm gave in the 11th century. To read was to ruminate as though you ate the word of God. Taste the goodness of your Redeemer, chew the honeycomb of his words, suck their flavor which is sweeter, chew by thinking, suck by understanding, swallow by loving and rejoicing. Henry Scudder, an early 17th century English minister much favored by the colonists, used the metaphor, which goes back to the word ruminate in Latin, chewing the cud. Meditation is instead of chewing the cud. In arguing that readers must actively ingest the word with a hunger and thirst after knowledge and growth by, of grace by it. Reading was therefore the act of returning to the same text time and time again. Another English minister affirmed bluntly that once or twice reading over a book for practice is not enough. A third, a best-selling evangelical, urged those who had his book to diligently read it over and over again, and when you have done, enter upon a serious consideration of the substance. Always the import of this advice was to translate reading into action. So every preface addressed to the Christian reader argued in statements that imply no difference between the words of godly writers and the word of God. Yet somewhere, somehow, these same prefaces evoke the everyday world of printers, marketplace, and competition, a world in which all books were mere commodities. You know, it's warm in this room. Is it, is it warm in this room? If so, you might open the door if it's quiet in the, if it's quiet in the hall. This is so much like entering Boston University, I can't begin to. <laughs> doubleness more evident than in William Greenhill's introduction to the second London printing of 
Thomas Shepard's The Sincere Convert. Thomas Shepard is a famous minister, which is why I choose this particular book. Early in the preface that he addressed to the Christian reader, Greenhill insisted that our divines and writers are the voice of God and not of man. Such abundance of the Spirit hath God poured into some men that it is not they, but the Spirit of the Father that speaks in them. Yet Greenhill had to concede that Shepherd's text was different from the Bible. No sooner has he said in his introduction that good books spring from the Bible than he admits that some, an anonymous some, say it's enough to praise God for his word, other books are not taunted. An offstage voice declares, but they have errors in them. And though Greenhill responds by likening the sincere convert to a garden without weeds, his next sentence, here are truths suitable, solid, and wholesome, implies that other books mislead. Indeed, the subtext of this rhapsody on truth is the prevalence of error in such perilous times. Another subtext is the marketplace, as implied in his plea that readers buy this book, though it costs us all, and in the franker plea, is it not a good purchase? Can you bestow your pains or lay out your money better? Even in the act of giving Shepherd's text a sacramental significance, Greenhill reaffirmed the duality of man and God, the good purchase and the price less. The same contradictions emerge in the preface of the New England minister contributed to Scudder's The Christian's Daily Walk. In the course of studying 1 Corinthians 3, 2, 3, John Davenport describes Scudder in his book as manifesting the work of the Holy Spirit. But as in Greenhill's introduction, a, a subtext intrudes, a voice, just amazing how these things come in, a voice objecting that many have already written on these subjects, and therefore this is superfluous. Davenport himself gives a little bibliography of, of competitors in the text. Yet he argues this, the Christian and intelligent reader shall find in this some things new. Many things expressed in a new manner, all digested in such a method, with such brevity and perspicuity, as was necessary to make the book of Vade and Ekman easily portable and profitable to the poor and illiterate. Now this is the language of a bookseller's advertisement, a tone that directs us to admire the skill of the printer and perhaps of the writer who have fabricated so pleasing a commodity. Scudder's Daily Walk owes its new manner to marketplace considerations, not to the intrinsic power of the word. As in these two cases, so in most other books that aim to emulate the Bible, human mediators ended up acknowledging their presence in the making of the text. This was so especially for the learned men who believed in the plain style, and who also felt that humane learning made the meaning of the Bible more apparent. And indeed, writers were responding to marketplace conditions of size, price, and competing products. The translators of the Baysan book expected it to sell in England, which is why the Cambridge Press ran off so many copies of the first edition. Scudder's Daily Walk, Shepherd's Sincere Convert, the narrative of Mary Robinson, all owe their appearance to market forces. Such salesmanship intruded in the delight of young Michael Wigglesworth that his poem, The Day of Doom, earned him a Bermuda vacation. He's the first writer we know of who made enough money on the book to take a Caribbean vacation. In revisions of the Baysan book, dictated by market forces, i.e. to make it sell better, and in the format of Geneva Bibles, godly books were products of a highly mediated world, the world of merchandise where print artifacts emerged from the interaction among printers, booksellers, buyers, and readers. Well, I'm going to trim here just a little bit. I want to turn to here, I'm going to pass by the question of how people did learn to read, which is essentially in households through their mothers and through a method of recitation at the dame schools where the where women took in students. How they learned to read, not write, but read, and an argument that I make for quite pervasive reading literacy to considering the text of the New England Primer here for a moment. The Ring and Primer, interestingly enough, contains, as do all these other godly books, the statement that it is not a book. The literary structure of the Ten Commandments was echoed in the rhetoric of the dutiful child's promises, which the child being entered in his letters and spelling was to learn by heart. 
the exhortation attributed to John Rogers, the martyr, this is the famous set piece where you have the, the woodcut of John Rogers at the stake with his nine or ten children and the wife, was explicit in confusing the living word and inanimate print, the written and the spoken. Give ear, my children, to my words, whom God hath dearly bought. Lay up his laws within thine heart, and so on and so forth, in ways that he spells out his life as right on content, his life as book, his book as life. Therefore, the text that children learn to read from, the text that children in New England learn to read from, themselves deny, although nonetheless admitting, the role of human mediation. In the very act of reading, you learn, or you think you learn, to read the Word of God. In keeping with the Protestant vernacular tradition, they suppose that to read was to hear, to hear was to see, and to see was to receive truth or light communicated to the inner self or heart. In presuming this relationship between the printed page and word, these texts impose on their readers how they should be used. They tell you within themselves how they are supposed to be read. When people in New England talked about their reading, as they sometimes did in speaking of their progress out of sin and into grace, the way they described the process, the experience, was in keeping with this ideology of print. One place where people spoke of books was in Cambridge Meeting House, as candidates for church membership testified about the work of grace. We're fortunate to have a series of actual reading stories that come down to us. John Trumbull, a man of modest means, may have attended school in England before he went to sea to earn a living. As a sailor, he read The Plain Man's Pathway at first for the purpose of practicing his literacy. But someone advised him to read that book over, meaning take it seriously. And Turnbull, Trumbull, may have done so since he thought of it as, in later life, a serious book. He went on to read a book of repentance from which he learned of some sins yet I lived in, so saw my misery. To read was to see. The act of reading was, as godly writers had insisted, akin to looking in a mirror. No wonder that some friends warned Trumbull that he would go mad, as other ministers would study, for books taught painful lessons. Returning once again to his career as a mariner, he read a book that he remembered as To Live Well and to Die Well, which affected me. To read was to feel. The act of reading involved the affective self, the heart, the will. The same verbs recur in the testimony of a farmer, Richard Eckes. In reporting that he knew Lewis Bailey's The Practice of Piety, Eckes remembered reading in it of the torments of hell which affected my heart with my estate by Adam's fall. He associated other books with the process of conversion. A third member of the Cambridge Church had read classes of evangelical devotion and learned how to distinguish between a true believer and a temporary. And he also learned to use books to work his way through spells of sickness. Anna Bancroft, woman in Windsor Congregation in Connecticut about 1701, spoke of reading at home in a book of the suffering of Christ, from which she remembered in particular the verse, Matthew 27:42, in which Jesus cried out he had been forsaken. I thought then what a wicked creature I was, that I could not believe in Christ and wondered that I was out of hell and so affected that I could read no more. In her case, and in the case of a young man named Peter Pratt, who found Thomas Shepard's sincere convert so exceedingly searching that he showed me from time to time my deceits of heart, and so drove me from every resting place and brought me many a time to my wit's end, in her case, as in Peter Pratt's, reading induced psychological distress. Something like the same experience happened to John Green of Cambridge reading Thomas Shepard's Catechism. And then let me quote one more example here. This is one I've cited elsewhere in another piece of writing. Boston merchant Thomas Keynes reported his reading and his attitude toward books in his lengthy will. He owned a little written book, which is a treatise on the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and willing it to his son as my special gift to him, Cain described it as a little thin pocketbook bound in leather, all written with my own hand which I esteem more precious than gold, there he quotes the martyrs, and which I have read over, I think, 
100 and 100 times. I, I desire him and hope that he will never part with it as long as he lives. Once again, that fusion of book and life. Embedded in this naive statement were all the key assumptions of the vernacular tradition, a mode of reading that involved rereading certain texts, and not once or twice, but 100 and 100 times, an aura of the book that's supremely precious because it contained the gifts of life, the high significance of literacy because it grants you access to this gift. Let me turn now to the, to the case of the Almanac. And my transition is that the, the actual book trade in New England, as Roger Thompson has informed us in various ways and others too, the actual book trade, while it functioned to make available in some of London's primers and catechisms and books of devotion, either by local printing or by importation, also functioned to bring in to New England books that were deemed ungodly books. And there's, of course, a familiar ideology that's existed this very day in the minister's voice about how the bad books are going to ruin us if we read them. And there's one particular book that makes an interesting case history. One book posed this problem in a special way, the Almanac. Here also, the New England clergy sought to use a genre to convey their ideology. But the evolution of the local almanac makes clear the power of the marketplace for what began as a godly text, in contradiction to the genre that most English readers knew, changed by 1690 back into something more traditional. In its standard English form, the English almanac involved astrology. It involved the man of science. It involved red letter days, that is to say the calendar, the sacred calendar of the Church of England, and various references to kings or dates in royal history. These books, of course, cut across all class lines. As Cotton Mather ruefully admitted, such an anniversary composure comes into almost as many hands as the best of books, that is, the Bible. The Cambridge printer, the first printer in Massachusetts, knew what he was doing when almost immediately he began issuing a yearly almanac for local readers. But what should a New England almanac contain? Would it reject the traditions of the genre? The almanac of 1646, the first local product to survive, was purified of red-letter days, references to Christmas, Valentines, and English kings, and all matter relating to English kings. Instead of using names for months, the almanac referred to them by numbers, first month and the like. Samuel Danforth explained why. But we under the New Testament, but we under the New Testament acknowledge no holy days except the first day of the week only. And as for all other other fixed or movable, we reject them wholly as superstitious and anti-Christian, which being built upon rotten foundations are idle, idle days, and in the day of their visitation shall perish. So too the man of signs was missing of a woodcut of the body to keep the astronomical sign, as were prognostications based on the movements of the stars and planets. For a lighter fare, Danforth inserted academic poetry on pastoral themes. A typical Harvard student. This reshaping of the almanac was deliberate. Early in the century, the Elizabethan theologian William Perkins had denounced the almanac because of its astrology. Citing scripture, Perkins denied that the movements of the stars were signals of impending famine, war, or plagues, the kind of trilogy that always follows. He extended his critique to the man of signs and concluded by insisting it was utterly unlawful, that's the Puritan speaking, utterly unlawful to buy or use prognostications. What he preferred was an evangelical description of the world, a recognition of God's power to work special provinces. Others in the same tradition, other reformers, wanted an almanac that represented time as marking off the progress of the coming kingdom, time as signaling God's providential rule. This debate was background to the making of the first dominion almanacs. Accepting Perkins on the errors of astrology, Danforth taught instead the doctrine of God's providence, as in his chronological table of some few memorable things which happened since the first planting of Massachusetts. One reason he could modify the text was that he had no competition. His was the only product on the marketplace. 
Another was his training as a learned man. He and his successors were recent Harvard graduates provide competition with a different product. The makers of this local almanac, most of them would-be ministers, displayed their academic training in many essays on Copernican astronomy and in a poetry that included classical allusions. More than once they explained the inadequacies of judicial astrology. <clears throat> a strategy that few would follow was to write exclusively for the Anglicans and Royalists who ruled Massachusetts briefly in the 1680s. John Tully, who introduced body verse in the almanacs he began to issue after 1686, and introduced references to Cromwell, the, the traitor, and Charles, the martyr, pursued this approach until 1689, that was for three years, until the royalists were swept from power, and then he goes back to the, goes back to the north. Yet change is occurring. Change is occurring. By the 1660s, a compromise formula has emerged, the first month called March. And by 1670, the names of the months alone have re-entered the New England Almanac. In 1678, the man of science reappears. In, as it happened, the third almanac to be published in Boston, and one of the distinctly secular cast. So also by the 1670s, there is a significant amount of astrological language creeping into the Berlin Almanac. And by the 1690s, the harbor monopoly has been broken. There are competing almanacs. You can follow this because Samuel Sewell goes out and buys each one of these and compares them, and he's preserved these almanacs with his own annotations on them. Competing almanacs, and the form has returned to the form of the English almanac minus still red-letter days. Yet some were left dissatisfied. The vision of a godly almanac lived on to influence a small number of the Harvard writers. The author of the almanac for 1666, Josiah Flint, reverted to the practice of using only numbers for the months and inserted a prophetic poem on 666. Indeed, it may have been the year of this prophetic significance that moved him to, re to restore the stricter style. At another time of perceived crisis, John Sherman made his almanac more pietistic by including a brief essay, brief, brief essay to promote religious improvement of the preceding calendar. In 1683, a youthful cotton mother aimed to turn a sorry almanac into a noble piece of writing. One gesture of reform was to replace the standard essay on astronomy with, quote, a serious reflection on man's moral and momentary life. Another was to list and date the contents of the Bible, citing as precedent the parallel product project of Protestant primers. Mather announced his as a Protestant almanac. Think it not strange. Let me conclude by quoting to you a poem that appears in an almanac which has, of the late 1680s, that unlike Mather, Mather's uh, youthful reformer has returned to the English tradition. Observe or, observe or not observe, yet we pray damn not. Judicial astrologer I am not. That art falsely so-called I loathe, I hate. Both name and thing I want to abominate. There you have, on the one hand, the pietistic, the puritistic tradition. On the other hand, you have a poem which I know as the Louis Books at the back. Well, I, I've lost it. It's a poem in which the writer apologizes to the reader for having to, to uh, incorporate reader expectations into his text. And this is someone who's included the man of signs, included some astrology. And he's caught between the old heuristic tradition, or what I call the new old spiritual tradition, and the older literary tradition that the colonists are, in a sense, as readers, demanding. The story of the Almighty Man is a kind of little parable, and I've offered to you as a little parable of how mediation occurs in many forms, first by the ministers to reform the Almanac, and then by readers and printers and other writers especially once the Boston Press opened up this competition, 
to turn back and restore the traditions of the genre that in some sense has more strength, traditions that have more strength than the particular Protestant reformist traditions that the initial colonists represented. It's not a tale of declension. It's a tale of a forced reform in a particular literary genre and then the re-emergence of the conventions of that genre in a particular literary marketplace. And as I'll end here for now, you can see that the overall story is one which that happens with the whole series of genres. Now, let me just call your attention to that. It happens with the execution sermons, which initially are uh, as much as possible products of the ministers, but in which the printers are rapidly figuring as co-producers and then issuing competing versions of last words of executions, which is fictive, which is real, becomes confused. It's a story, too, of captivity narratives in which, at first, Mary Rowlandson's is a true masterpiece of the naive vernacular tradition, but by 1720, this has become a booming market, and printers are issuing these as rapidly as they can get their hands on captivity narratives. Uh, it's true also with the piece of like the second spiral, as they say, dramatic narratives of apparently spiritual torments. It's true, finally, of the portent and prodigy literature, the literature of God's wonders, which is fictive in the very beginning, fictive in the very beginning, as say, the printers are inventing prodigy products, and yet intermixed with a, you know, an honest tradition. Now, for the 18th century, nobody can tell the honest tradition from the fictive tradition that can't be told apart any longer. So in this sense, the the final moral the kind of message that I give to you is that on the one hand there's this representation of the book as living, as alive, as truth, as unmediated, which is sustained in many, many ways in this society, in this particular literary culture, by how you learn to read and so forth. And yet on the other hand, there is this series of contradictions that are embodied within this world of print and that in some sense lead to a kind of empowering of lay people to pick and choose meanings as they as they wish. So thank you very much.